women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. You gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about change and the women who make it happen on and off the Princeton campus. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and my guest today is Jennifer Rexford. Jen wears at least three hats for the purposes of this conversation. She's an undergraduate alum from the class of 1991. Uh, she's also the Gordon Wu Professor of Engineering and Chair of Princeton's Computer Science Department. She's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the National Academy of Engineering, and she's a highly regarded researcher who's working on solving problems that threaten the Internet as we know it today. So, Jen, thanks for taking time off from that very important job. My pleasure. <laughs> Glad to be here. It's really good to have you. So if you uh, graduated in 1991, my math says you started in about 1987, which, let's be honest, was sort of the distant dawn, certainly of consumer computing. Um, The Macintosh was only released, gosh, a year or a couple of years before that. Tim Berners-Lee hadn't even yet invented the World Wide Web, and Google was a, you know, a twinkle in in, in a couple of eyes. Um, what in the world did you see back then? I mean, what motivated you to start pursuing a career at that stage? So I was really interested in math, and then I got a personal computer in 1984, like I think a lot of people did when yeah. the PC started to become popular. And I was just mesmerized by the fact that even as a novice programmer, that I could create something new mm-hmm. out of my own imagination. And then I became fascinated that people decided how the computer was designed and how the languages we used to program them were designed. And it just seemed like a real democratization of innovation, Uh that it really allowed a lot of people to innovate, even a a high school sophomore, in small and modest ways. And so I became really interested in understanding more about how computers work and how to to further make it easier for other people to to use computers. Did you, what kind of resources did you have here at the university then, 87, 88, 89? Right, so we were using mainframes for Mm -hmm. doing our programming assignments, not punch cards. Yeah, mainframes <laughs> is, of course, something that were phased out before people today were even born. Exactly. Yeah. And, and certainly we worked a lot in computer clusters rather than having laptops to work in our in our dorms. Right. So the students find it very quaint, that the idea that you have to go to a place yeah. to, to use a computer. I think that the physicality of the computer as a place you go yeah. obviously is gone today. But that was very much the case at Princeton at the time and elsewhere, too. And we had Internet access of, mm-hmm. of, of sorts, but not really access to anything interesting by it, except mm-hmm. the ability to communicate with each other mm-hmm. via email. But for the most part, we didn't really have, as you mentioned, the web yet. Yeah. And so the idea that the, the world knowledge would be at our fingertips was, was not yet yeah. on the horizon. Did you have any awareness of Princeton's early steps in computing? I mean, I, I recently came from the U of K, I call it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and of course, Alan Turing is a, is a, uh, a national hero. Um, I didn't realize he had come through Princeton um, and was doing work in early computing here at Princeton. John von Neumann also uh, at the Institute for Advanced Studies, of course, but also here at Princeton building computers. Were you aware as an undergraduate student about that? I wasn't when I first arrived. I I took several courses in history of science while I was here, so I got a chance to learn more about it as as a student of of Mm -hmm. history, if you will. But Mm -hmm. I have to say at that time, the the personal computers and Microsoft DOS and so on were, and the, the Mac that had just come out, were really the things we were thinking about. It was almost ahistorical. Yeah, in a way, particularly as a teenager, you wouldn't think think back. No, no, you 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 don't. I mean, it was just it just dropped in your lap, and here was this cool toy. Exactly. In fact, I remember even t- uh, taking a typing class before the computer arrived at our house because I felt if I didn't know how to type somehow, 
you know, that would be a barrier to, to using a computer. Of course, today people wouldn't think that way. No, no, now you have voice-activated stuff anyway. But exactly. So what about students today? I mean, it's a whole different world now, right? Um, and as chair of the, the department, you have this unique perspective, I think, on that change in student attitudes towards the world of computing. What, what, what's going on today? Yeah, first of all, tons of students just come in already viewing the compute, computing as a lever, to mm-hmm. solve a wide range of problems that interest them, or, or a fascination with the technology itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're the most popular major at Princeton by a mile. And this uh, is new, I think, right? It this is. is. Yes, yeah, so if you look at the class even of 2011, you know, just seven years ago, right. it was in the mid-30s of a number of students being computer science majors, so really one of the smaller departments on wow. campus mm-hmm. at the time. Class of 2018 had 165 mm-hmm. computer science majors, so 13% of the student body. Wow. And we, we have a certificate program, of a minor, if you will, in Princeton's parlance, mm-hmm. on applications of computing that's another 125 students. Mm-hmm. So 20, 25% of our students at Princeton are majoring or minoring uh, in computer science. And that's the number one undergraduate choice, I think. Exactly. That right? That's amazing. It is. And if you look at our intro courses, like our intro course for majors mm-hmm. uh, is, is taken by almost 60% of all students in Princeton. You mean even students who aren't choosing to major take that exactly. kind of high level, no, low level course, but certainly it's on the track for actual. Right. It's a demanding course. It's not a yeah. gut, if you will. Yeah, that's it's, what it's I was definitely, It's definitely a challenging course. And the students are voting with their feet. And some of that's a national trend. I mm-hmm. mean, there's tremendous interest in computer science. Obviously, it's where a lot of the future jobs are. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a lever for change in other fields. Uh, and I think we also make a, a strong effort to teach it in an interdisciplinary way. So mm-hmm. the students create applications like turning their computer into a music keyboard or uh-huh. using recursion to create art. Uh-huh. You know, fractal art patterns. So the the assignments are something you wouldn't be embarrassed to show your roommate. Oh, that's great. Uh, so I think that inspires a lot of students. And there almost is a, a kind of peer pressure, if you will. It's like, oh, you haven't taken Coast 126. <laughs> you know, so it's it's a it's a hugely popular uh, course that I think has been a, a gateway for a lot of students who come to campus not knowing much about computer science. And there's still a lot of that because, yeah. frankly, high schools, a lot of high schools don't teach it or don't teach it well. Yeah. So we find a lot of students switch into computer science. We offer an AB degree uh, as well as a BSc degree. Yeah. And so students who discover computer science after they arrive at Princeton uh, enjoy that class and then and then continue. So how do you get students that haven't ever done any programming or maybe don't know anything at all about computers? How do you get them up to speed if they're in the same track with students who, presumably there are students at Princeton who come in saying, I want to be a computer scientist from the age of two or something. Exactly. So the, some of them skip the intro course if they have that much background, but also in the intro course, we have two separate precept sections. We have mm-hmm. that sort of newbie precept section. If you've never programmed before, it meets 50% longer. It gives you a little more time to ramp up on programming. And more importantly, it it doesn't have a lot of people in the room that might be showing off the knowledge they, yeah. <laughs> they brought to Princeton with them, because it is an area where there's just tremendous diversity in, in student preparation. And and it's, it's, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I beg no. your pardon. I just, I find it kind of scary that, you know, you could be 18, 19, 20 years old and feel like you're already 10 years out of date mm-hmm. uh, in, in these skills. I mean, it's, it's you know... <laughs> What does this what does this mean for the future of the field? If you if, if right, it means that that computing and computational thinking, if you will, the idea of thinking about an algorithm or a recipe for computation, it's the creative output of so many kinds of work we do. Mm-hmm. A lot of work these days, even outside of computer science, is not producing a single answer to a single question, but conceiving of a recipe for computing that answer in mm-hmm. multiple circumstances. And so that mode of thought is as intellectually important as reading, writing, and arithmetic, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And so that's an important reason for students to take computer 
computer science. And often they're going to use that as a tool in their profession or in their junior paper or in upper level courses. And so it's becoming a sort of just a basic skill yeah. and a basic mode of thought and inquiry that, yeah. that every student needs. But we have, I mean, there's a there's a shortage of capacity in teaching. You know, there, there may be, however many students there that may be interested or certainly that need this kind of skill set may not be able to get it. And right. what so are your at, thoughts on that? At Princeton, there's sort of two parts to that question. What do we do at Princeton mm-hmm. and what, what should we do nationwide yeah. or worldwide? At Princeton, this course is huge, but we still have 25 student preceptorial sections. So mm-hmm. we have lecture twice a week and we have video lectures in a flipped form where the students can watch them on their own time or watch them multiple times or at different speeds depending mm-hmm. yeah. on their comfort level. And then small discussion sections. Because what we really want to balance is we want to do the boutique education that is what makes Princeton special, but do it at scale. Mm-hmm. And those yeah. things are at odds, but they're reconciled by resources. Mm-hmm. By having 25 students in a room with an instructor, with a graduate student teaching assistant or, mm-hmm. or a faculty member, uh, to allow them to have the kind of hands-on interaction. We offer in the summer for students who have less programming experience an opportunity to spend the summer on campus, uh, getting more programming experience, working with a faculty member or a grad student on a new project. I worked with a a freshman a few years ago who wrote a paper with me mm-hmm. based on the work she did in the summer. And that builds up their confidence and mm-hmm. their experience applying these techniques in, in new settings. For the larger pipeline, uh, the training high school teachers is mm-hmm. critically important. And we've done a lot of work in our department to make our curriculum available on uh, massive open online courses, summer training programs for high school teachers, outreach where our own undergraduates go into mm-hmm. high school classrooms in the tri-state area mm-hmm. to bring our curriculum and support for teaching into those high school where maybe the computer science teacher didn't major in computer science or majored in computer science 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. It's challenging for any of us to stay current. And no certainly kidding. someone teaching six, seven, eight periods a day of high school is much more hampered in, in trying to keep up with such a fast-paced field. Yeah. But it makes me wonder what, you know, there's a lot at stake here, I guess, is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to get at. I mean, if we don't have enough teachers to teach the number of students that, that that need to know or want to know and need to know, what's at stake? I mean, you know, what... what right. What I mean, doing? if you look even at the, the jobs in STEM, at science, tech, engineering, and math, the Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts 60% of those jobs are in computer science. And what's that going to be like in even 10 years, probably? And, and, and it could be even more. Yeah. And that, that's across all areas, math, science, et cetera. Mm. That, that, so that knowledge is really critical. So we have to find ways of, of scaling up our capacity to teach. Even the big state schools, they struggle with this. They have larger faculties and larger classes. But even there, you see people capping courses or only a, or capping the major mm-hmm, yeah. and not allowing non-majors to take courses. Everybody's struggling with the scale problem. We're trying very, diffi- uh, very, very carefully to do this at Princeton in a way that doesn't shut students out. Yeah. And in fact, we really want to be an outward-facing department that can be a part of every student's experience. Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned that I, I lived in the UK for for the last several years. They have a, 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 a big problem with capacity and are working to uh, skill up uh, recent graduates through apprenticeship programs where industry is incentivized to hire unskilled uh, students train them on the job and uh, and give them some class education alongside you know for a day or two a week or something like that. Do you see any role for that in in the in the U.S.? Yeah, I think so. And I, you see a lot of companies having programs where they train new hires for one or even two years. Mm-hmm. And even if they have a computer science degree, because you know programming the Google way mm-hmm. and programming the way you learn at Princeton, we're definitely teaching fundamentals. But there's a whole suite of software mm-hmm. and tools that a big company like Google or Facebook use that even someone with a CS degree 
degree might go through an apprenticeship. Oh, and that's interesting. And that, that once that scaffolding is in place, there's an opportunity to expose that to a broader set of students. Yeah. Uh, similarly, you could view minoring in computer science, doing a master's. Some of our mas- We have a master's program uh, as well, and that's mostly students that maybe discover computer science a little late uh-huh. or went to a school that didn't have a, a full panoply of courses mm-hmm. where they might need to take some extra courses. Mm-hmm. And that becomes you know, an additional option for students, yeah. as well as the massive open online courses and online master's programs that have been springing up at many places. Yeah, springing up and really interesting. I don't want to pass by talking about our faculty because, again, you have this incredible perspective. We have how many more faculty than we did when you were a student? Oh, gosh. We, well, it's almost uncountable. I mean, mm-hmm. I started when I started at Princeton Computer Science Department had just been created out of the electrical engineering right. department. It was very tiny, yeah. you know, maybe a dozen slightly more faculty. Now we have 45 tenure-track faculty, yeah. 47 if you count people arriving in the next few months. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we've hired 18 of those in the last four years. Yeah. Part of that's because wow. of a, a deep investment by the university in expanding the size and scope of the computer science department, in part due to student demand, but more importantly, the students are reacting to the same phenomenon that the administration is, which is to recognize that computational thinking is essential across campus. It's a mode of, of scholarship and inquiry mm-hmm. and a critical skill for students as well. So yeah. it's both a, a scholarly reason and a pragmatic reason that we view computer science as integral to the modern university. And so there's been tremendous growth, and, and particularly in areas around data science, mm-hmm. uh, but also in other core areas of the field, and a chance for us to broaden into some areas we used to be too small mm-hmm. to Such cover as... well. Things like robotics, mm-hmm. human-computer interaction that, that sometimes benefit from having a, a critical mass of multiple faculty members, mm-hmm. where adding just one person might not be enough to really get us in the game. Mm-hmm. But when we add multiple faculty lines mm-hmm. in a concerted way, we can really flesh out a department that can grow in its core and grow in its connections to critical other parts of campus. And so um, what are the strengths of the Princeton Computer Science Department? Where, right. where so historically, uh, theoretical computer science, the sort of foundations of the field, all the way back to Alan Turing, mm-hmm. got his PhD at Princeton in mathematics, mm-hmm. the Institute for Advanced Study nearby, our theoretical computer science group, one of the best in the world and has been mm-hmm. for a long time, long before the, the recent growth. Uh, areas that have become really strong as we've had a chance to grow more, uh, accelerating discovery in other fields. Mm-hmm. Princeton, we're fortunate to have a small, intimate campus with uniform high quality across the board. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to work with one of the best neuroscientists or best people in genomics or mm-hmm. psychology or math or sociology, they're here mm-hmm. at Princeton. Mm-hmm. And the small, intimate campus means you actually encounter the person. And the small size means we can be thoughtful about how we allocate space, how we evaluate faculty for tenure and promotion mm-hmm. to make sure that we value excellence over, you know, kind of course quantitative metrics for yeah, yeah. evaluating faculty so that we can really allow faculty to do the work that's fundamental at the cracks between established disciplines. Mm-hmm. And so I think we excel there especially because mm-hmm. of our small size and our mm-hmm. Value on on uh, mm-hmm. and assessing excellence. I'm struck. I mean, you you sketched out an incredibly uh, broad interdisciplinary um, approach, and I'm just curious if that interdisciplinarity was by design or if it's are things percolating up all over the you know world simultaneously in some way that brought well, it all together. I think here? computer science is inherently interdisciplinary when it's outward facing mm-hmm. because every field is being transformed by computation. Mm-hmm. And so it's natural that if we reach out there's someone to take a hand mm-hmm. uh, if you will. So and I, and I but I do think it happens more at Princeton for the reasons I mentioned did, the, yeah. the small size and the 
the uniformity of quality across campus, I think, makes it happen more easily and more often here than perhaps at other schools. So I know there's a difference, in a sense, between data science and computer science, but they're clearly linked at the hip, if if not more places. (laughs) (laughs) The brain. Um, uh, So can we talk about data science a little bit? It's another uh, strength of Princeton, but it's also, um, I think... um, uh, driving a lot of the interest in computing in some of the non-traditionally STEM subjects, such as humanities and, and social science. So first right. up, maybe just to clear some ambiguity, what what is data science? So I think of it as, as turning raw data that could come from a, a scientific instrument or text from a book or information on the web or a sensor on your phone, mm-hmm. whatever the source, taking that raw data and converting it into knowledge mm-hmm. and decisions mm-hmm. that can be based on that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so at some level, it's natural computer science is at the heart of data science because we're all about information, mm-hmm. storing it, computing on it, visualizing it. You know, compressing it, storing it, all mm-hmm. of what we do is about that, but certainly other fields as well, mm-hmm. electrical engineering, operations research, applied math, uh, statistics, all of these also hover around the quantitative study of, of data. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the initiative for data science on campus is certainly broader than mm-hmm. computer science as well to include all of those departments and more. And each application domain whether it's science or sociology or history, they have intellectual questions that come from their own home discipline. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, unique statistical or methodological questions that need the the techniques for analyzing the data Mm -hmm. to be be different Mm -hmm. or new because of those peculiarities of their discipline. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's, it's a campus-wide mm-hmm. a campus-wide thing that benefits from a close connection with the disciplines that, that understand the fundamentals of how to compute on data. My background was in, in social science. It was in political science, and, and, uh, but I also know a little bit about some of the other sociology and so forth where people used to gather their data by surveys, and surveys are, 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 are rare now, right? I mean, a lot of social science mm-hmm. has been utterly transformed by unique, new data sets. Yeah, either created by crowdsourcing or by the sharing of public data. Yeah, are um, being able to collect data on, on social networks to do analysis of, of social network data to make up for the kind of things you would have to study by surveys to mm-hmm. understand relationships yeah. between people. So uh, Princeton, and certainly one area that you've, you've, you've spoken to me about in the past is biomedical data science. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really struck Princeton doesn't have a medical school, but we're nonetheless at the forefront of the, this work thanks to uh, this kind of data science. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to right. that. Right. So we have a lot of faculty in our department that have connections to psychology, neuroscience, and genomics mm-hmm. in particular, but I think there's scope to do this even in a more wide way, and other departments are already investing deeply in this. I think uh, the lack of a medical school is actually an advantage. Hmm. Uh, there are a lot of public data sets now that didn't exist a decade or more ago, so mm-hmm. the reliance on a medical school is less. Mm-hmm. And because we don't have a medical school, our faculty that work in these areas are really most motivated by basics discovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly clinical applications come, mm-hmm. but clinical applications are not the, not the tail wagging the dog, mm-hmm. if you will. And so it provides an opportunity to really focus on the basic science mm-hmm. and the methods needed to transform how that science is conducted. And can you give a few examples? I mean, what, what, where are the breakthroughs in, in, in uh, biomedical data science? Right. I'll give an example from collaboration of some of our faculty in, in, with neuroscience. Mm-hmm. So there they have a, an fMRI machine that can scan the blood flow in the human brain. I'm going to inject functional um, magnetic, magnetic resonance, resonance 
imaging. Tree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So human in that machine, you can see what's going on in the brain. Mm-hmm. If you do whole brain analysis, there's hope to understand something about the cognitive process that's mm-hmm. going on uh, in that person. That would normally take months or even years to analyze. I see. If you can get that computation time down to a sub-second level, and that's what my colleagues have done, you can now do interactive experiments with a human subject while they're in the machine. Mm-hmm. And so what they've done are things like, hey, is this person concentrating or not? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you can tell that from the analysis, you can change and let's say give them a picture to look at that's blurry mm-hmm. and make the act of concentrating bring it into focus. And so now that's a new method of inquiry in, in neuroscience to understand human thought and to help control it by giving triggers to people who might not be concentrating. That's diagnostically useful. Is that football player on the, that just got hit hard, should they go back on the field? Uh-huh. Well, of course they shouldn't, but, yeah. <laughs> but it's all a question of degrees. Yeah. Is it really yeah. dangerous for them to go back on the field? Uh, is there tr- uh, therapy for people with attention disorders to help them better understand the cues mm-hmm. that help them realize they're not concentrating? So getting that to work required, obviously, knowledge and neuroscience that mm-hmm. the neuroscientists bring to the table, but an ability to harness multiple machines to work on the computation as one, mm-hmm. and machine learning techniques and algorithms to come up with the recipes for computation mm-hmm. that would extract the neuroscience knowledge out of the data mm-hmm. five orders of magnitude faster than, than it was done before. And now they're they're working with hospitals like those at UPenn mm-hmm. um, to be able to allow other people to scan people, send the data to the cloud, public cloud, and get the results back so that this can become available as a diagnostic tool uh, in, in hospitals. In real time. Yeah, and in, in real time and in real hospitals. Right. So, and, the, and because we don't have a, a medical school, there's an opportunity to collaborate more extensively with a wider range of hospitals to make this a, a sort of um, packaged service, if you will, for, for doctors and medical researchers. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Um, you talk about partnerships and, or, 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 you know, collaborating with out, people outside. So but Princeton has really been working hard to make stronger connections with, with local nonprofits and industry and through at the university level and also individual faculty mm-hmm. because it, particularly in data science, access to data and computation and storage resources are huge. Mm-hmm. You really need them to be able to do cutting edge research and to have impact on society with that work. Mm-hmm. So Google will be uh, opening a lab in Princeton uh, focused on artificial intelligence work, uh, born out of a startup company of one of our faculty that was acquired by Google, and the, and also with some part-time appointments with faculty and mm-hmm. grad students interning there as well, be located in Palmer Square, mm-hmm. uh, right, right, right across here from Right in Center Nas- City. <laughs> and I, love, I love the image of you know, Nassau Hall, this mm-hmm. centuries-old building across the street from a, yes. you know, Google's newest location. I think it really brings together how the theoretical foundations imply, you know, imply and, and inform the practice of tomorrow. Yeah, and and why is that? I mean, it's 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 this is important for the advancement of science, but it's also important for keeping people in universities, right? I'm I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about that. Yeah, and that goes in both directions. We're in a, a midst of a feeding frenzy mm. because there's a, sh- a shortage of talent in particularly in data science, and so anyone with that skill is in high demand, and and also sees this as a great time to have tremendous impact. Yeah, and so the the pull to go to industry or to a research lab or think tank uh, is very high. And yet, I think nobody, including those companies, want to eat the seed corn. Right. Absolutely. Because if we don't have people in academia, they're not teaching the next generation. Exactly. And, so forth, right? exactly. and not creating the open source software and public data sets mm-hmm. that can also propel the field forward. Mm-hmm. And so these partnerships are, I think a lot of companies are starting to be interested in locating near a university to get the advantage of connecting with faculty without mm-hmm. having to poach them. Mm-hmm. And to also engage with a broader university community that can help them in recruiting top 
top students and creating mm-hmm. you know, the ideas that you know maybe won't be in a product tomorrow, but maybe mm-hmm. in one, two, or ten years from now. Yeah, I mean, are there certain fields of research that are n- more natural to university researchers than they are to industrial researchers, and vice versa? I mean, is there is there any line in the sand that you see or? Or, or how, do, how does that universe yeah, divide? That's a great question. I think it's 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 very field specific, so it's hard to give mm-hmm. a precise answer. But I'll just take my own work. I work on computer networking, mm-hmm. and certainly anything that requires tremendous scale of data analysis is more difficult because of the resources required. Things where I need my own data center mm-hmm. to try out mm-hmm. a new networking idea. I do that kind of work, but in collaboration, mm-hmm. usually with Microsoft or mm-hmm. Google. Mm-hmm. But if I want to work on new algorithms for the next generation hardware that isn't available yet, but I think is coming. Mm-hmm. That's keeping my finger to the wind mm-hmm. to understand the technology trends well enough to know four, five, ten years from now what's going to be available, but I'm, I'm getting what needs to be on that hardware or above that hardware ready. Mm-hmm. That kind of work, it can't happen in industry, but it requires a, a focus on a much longer term timescale than many companies are capable of. And it benefits greatly from having theoreticians and programming languages researchers and hardware experts, a much broader range of expertise and a collaborative spirit. Yeah. Uh, to make that kind of work come together. And so that ends up, for me, being a, a strategic place to be. So we constantly hear uh, about faculty getting poached and, 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 you know, MAs and sometimes younger getting poached by industry with exorbitant salaries and, and so on. So I wonder what keeps yourself and people like yourself in universities mm-hmm. when you could presumably turn around and, and, and um, earn a hefty Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, being at a university is a delight, first of all, because we have really unfettered opportunity to create Mm -hmm. and explore. And working with students is is so cool. I mean, and it's (laughs) not just cool in the sense of influencing other people. It has sort of a parenting kind of view. See a student that you knew as a freshman, graduated as a senior, and you feel you've contributed something to their growth. Yeah. Or with a, even more with a PhD student, where the relationship's even tighter. But it's more than that. I think the the articulation of your field to someone else is an intellectual activity. Mm-hmm. And in a fast moving field, uh, it's a step we often skip mm-hmm. because we're moving on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And the sort of pressure to explain ourselves clearly, articulately, mm-hmm. to synthesize across a lot of different areas is something. I, I worked in industry for nine years before I came to, to mm-hmm. Princeton in a research lab, so I had a lot of freedom, yeah. but I wasn't doing that kind of synthesis that you only really do when you're forced to explain to someone who doesn't already know the subject. And so that's re- that's as rewarding as the personal, and they're both together make it tons of fun. Well, that seems like a good point to end, so I want to say thank you so, so much for coming and talking to us. My pleasure. And I want to thank also uh, Dan Kearns, who is our audio engineer, and our producer, Danielle Alio. And say thank you to the audience for listening and hope they'll come back, you'll come back, for more podcasts with the fascinating women who have come through Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.